Well, good morning. It is really great to be back here with you all this morning. Um, uh, for those of you who may not know me, I have been um, planting from St. Paul's, a, a church over in Summer's Corner um, with a team of folks, and I get to come back every now and again and be with you all, and it is a true blessing. Another reason you might not have seen me around too much is because my family took a long vacation this summer at the beginning in June, and we went up um, to New England and, and stayed some on the coast of Maine and went all the way up to a town called Eastport. It was about as far north on the coast as you could get. I woke up and I was looking at Canada. <laughs> and in Eastport, well, there's lots of things to do, but well, it's not that much. It's actually very chill. But, but I found a mustard, what do you say, gr- uh, mustard... Uh, they, ground, they grind mustard there. It's not really a factory, but anyway, they have mustard there. I love mustard. I like mustard barbecue sauce. I like mustard on hamburgers and hot dogs. You name it, mustard is delicious. I found this place, and I said to the family, we have got to go and take a tour. And they said, really? And I said, yes. And so we all went, and we toured the mustard um, mill, it's a mill, the mustard mill, and we then went to their showroom, and they had all sorts of mustards. I mean, this, the only stone ground mustard place left in the United States, and in their mustard um, their showroom, they had all of these mustards. They had yellow mustard, and brown mustard, and Dijon mustard. They also had honey mustard. They had things like jalapeno mustard. They had beer mustard. They had bacon mustard. They had bourbon-flavored mustard. It was heaven, even for the kids. We said, enjoy kids, this is your lunch. All that is my way of getting into these parables where Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And for most of us, we know intellectually, we're like, okay, we know what he's saying, but but most of us have never seen a mustard seed, probably not seen a mustard tree And it's hard to understand sometimes what Jesus is talking about. It was hard enough for the people he was speaking to in Palestine to understand the parables. Even the disciples are calling him aside later and they're saying, Hey, Jesus, can you explain that one to us? We don't get it. But now, thousands of years later, we're far from an agrarian society, and especially one in the Middle East, we don't always understand. And so maybe Jesus could have said to me, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, indeed, and out of so small a seed grows so fine a selection of mustards that you would never imagine. And so he said that to his disciples, after so small a seed can grow so great a tree. So we're going to be dealing with these parables then on the kingdom of heaven and unpacking unpacking them and opening them up. And so let's, um, let's follow along, maybe. We're in Matthew chapter 13. Um, it'll be helpful if you can sort of read these parables as we go through of them, because there are five of them we want to look at. They're all very short. Um, Matthew chapter 13, we're going to begin at verse 31, and we'll, we'll go through it from there. While you're finding that, just a word about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus talks about it a lot. He speaks about it um, in Matthew's gospel all the time. It's the kingdom of heaven. In other places, it's um, the kingdom of God. But he's talking about a kingdom. 
This kingdom was expected by the Jewish people. They believed that there would be a day when God would return via His Messiah to establish the nation of Israel and their kingdom on earth. And in the back of their mind, all the time, they're thinking about 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God makes this promise to David. David says, God, I want to build you a house. And God says, no, David, we're going to leave that to your son Solomon. You won't build me a house, but I'm going to make you and your descendants into the household of God. And God says to David, I will sit you on Israel's throne for how long? Five years? Ten? Twenty? No. Forever. God says, I will sit your ancestors on your throne, David, forever. And yet, in Jesus' day, there was hardly an ancestor to David on the throne, at least not a righteous one. There have been years when David's throne sat empty and destroyed. They were waiting. Forever doesn't mean never. Forever means forever. And they expected the kingdom of God to be returned and restored in Israel. And this would happen um, perhaps violently. Certainly with a military leader riding in to overthrow Israel's oppressors, and to establish the nation once and for all, the kingdom of heaven. Now, our understanding um, is a little different. We hear the kingdom of heaven, and our thoughts have been transformed and shaped by the New Testament and Jesus. And so when we think about the kingdom of heaven, sometimes I think we think about um, this sort of ethereal kingdom this is far away from here. Maybe we think about it being up in the clouds or beyond, but, but it's somewhere else. And Jesus is there, and our loved ones who have gone before us are there, and one day we hope to leave this place and go to that place. Now, there is a modern amount of truth in that, that at some point when we die, but before Jesus comes back, we will be with Jesus in His kingdom But what the last chapters of Revelation tell us is that that kingdom that seems far off will actually be right here. And so when we read Revelation, we see the vision of the city of Jerusalem, this image of the kingdom of heaven, and the direction it is moving. It's not like John is being brought into the kingdom. The kingdom is coming down to John on this earth where all things are renewed and restored. The kingdom of heaven will be a present and full reality here. And in many ways, we are called to live it out as citizens of this earth. We're we're citizens of, of the United States. We're citizens of this earth. We're citizens of countries around the world. But ultimately, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we're here in advance of its fullness. And so these parables from Jesus have meaning for us today. This isn't just some place we're going. It's some place that will be here, and it's something that we are right now, the kingdom of heaven. And so we have then five parables before us about the kingdom. Um, the first two, they're going to show us a little bit about the character and the nature of the kingdom. The second two, they're going to show us how we are... Um, 
called to respond, or if, if we really grasp the depth and fullness of the kingdom of heaven, um, how does one respond to that? What is the, the natural reaction to that? And then the final parable, um, it shows us the finalization of the kingdom. It sort of it explains to us, answers some questions about the kingdom now, and it shows us what it will be like in the world to come. So let's begin. We're in Matthew 13, verse 31. Let's look at these first two parables. Um, Jesus put another parable before them, and he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. A mustard seed is tiny. Is it the smallest seed in the whole known universe? No, probably not. But, but in Jesus' day and in Palestine, was it the smallest seed they could think of? Yes. At least it was very close. Compared to the size of the tree it would become, it was incredibly small. And so when you would plant it, maybe you would expect like a, a vine perhaps or a tomato plant or, you know, maybe uh, something small. And yet this tiny seed would grow into this great bush, this great tree of all the garden plants. It was the largest, 10 to 12 feet high with strong, sturdy branches that could welcome birds in their nests, a beautiful sight, all coming from this tiny little seed. The mustard seed would grow something glorious where almost nothing would be expected. And so it is the kingdom of heaven. This would be very much against the Jewish expectation of the day that they saw a military ruler swooping in with, with lots of awareness and lots of um, clamor and banging of drums and battles and establishing a throne. No, the kingdom of heaven was going to come in quietly and unexpectedly and grow into something glorious. Second parable, verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, I'm no baker, some of you are, but my understanding is when you put the yeast in the flour, it, it, it doesn't just stay a tiny thing, it expands to all the flour, and then you can take a little bit of that yeast and put it in some other flour, and it expands to the fullness, till all the flour, nothing is left untouched by this leaven. And so it is with the kingdom of heaven. There will be nothing outside of the reach of the kingdom. It's not a kingdom that's someplace else and we just leave this earth for what it will. The kingdom will touch every single person, every single relationship, every single leaf and bud and flower and seed. The kingdom will reach to the ends of the earth, to the heights of heaven and to the depths of hell. The kingdom cannot be stopped. Cannot be stopped. It is all-encompassing. So this tiny little seed will grow into something glorious that touches all things and claims all things for its own. How do we respond to that? Well, let's 
skip ahead. Our reading, uh, rightly, I think, pairs these verses with the parables beginning at verse 44. How do people respond to the kingdom? Well, well, here's one. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. I'm going to be honest. I struggled with this parable for a long time. I'm a pretty practical guy. doesn't make sense to me that if you find the treasure, why wouldn't you just keep it? Who needs the field, right? You got the treasure. You could have the treasure and your money in the bank and leave the field behind. But in these days, there were no banks as we think of banks. And so if you had a treasure, you went to your land and you buried it. And that was your bank. And so if a man who doesn't own the land comes upon the treasure and he says, Oh, here's some buried treasure. I think I'll take it with me. That's stealing. And it's not yours. And so he says, This treasure is so valuable. It is so priceless that I will do everything in my power to make it completely and officially and legally mine. So he sells everything. Everything. And he buys the field and everything in it. You see it perhaps a little more clearly in the next parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. He found one pearl of great value. This isn't an investment strategy where you take a little bit of money, put it in one thing, and get a lot of money. This is somebody who sees the priceless pearl, the one pearl of great value, and gives away everything, sells everything he has to get it. That, friends, is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Like a treasure in the field, a pearl of great value that these people would sacrifice, would give away every single thing they have for the sake of taking part in the kingdom. When we realize the depth and the riches of God's kingdom and of His Son, Jesus, there should be nothing that we can't let go of. This isn't earning the kingdom like, oh, well, let me do these things and give up these things so I can have the kingdom. This is a reality that this kingdom is of infinite worth. And if there's anything on this earth that is holding us from it, we've got to be willing to let it go. So great is the kingdom of God. Now, if you're listening to these parables, whether in Jesus' day or ours, and you hear of the greatness of the kingdom, and you think of its worth, and you think that that Jesus has said the kingdom of heaven is near, it's at hand, that that in many ways, not in many ways, but that in reality, we are the kingdom. Uh, A fair question to ask is, if we're the kingdom and the kingdom of heaven is near, why doesn't it always seem so great? Why does tragedy persist? Why does death seem to rule over all of us? Why do we continue to struggle in our own hearts with our own sin and shame? Why does it seem like evil is everywhere and oftentimes has the upper hand? 
And so Jesus tells this last parable that we read this morning. Verse 47. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The kingdom today is like fish swimming in an ocean. There's good fish and there's bad fish. And if you know anything about fishing, you know you're going to catch them both. You keep the good and you throw out the bad. But that's an explanation of today. That evil and good that God's people and those who would stand against Him, they, they, they dwell together, sometimes in conflict, that sin and evil and death and these things that are not of God, they dwell with us at the same time. And we wonder, why do these things have to coexist? And I'll tell you this, it's an act of grace that God has given us time. Because if our Lord Jesus came back right away, If he had no tolerance for the good and evil mixed together, not a single person in this room would know the kingdom of heaven. Think about that moment that this dwelt in your heart richly, that you came into the presence of Christ. What an act of grace that God gave us that time. But in the meantime, for those of us who know Jesus, it can be incredibly challenging and incredibly difficult. And so we look ahead to the future. You know, we read this passage about fiery furnaces and separating good and evil and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when you read it liturgically, we read these things and then we say, thanks be to God. And you're like, "Ah, I don't know about that. But thanks be to God that he is not content for his kingdom to look just like this world today. Thanks be to God that he is not content to let evil and death reign in his kingdom. Thanks be to God for judgment that purifies and cleanses us, that separates evil things and good things. This is good news. We have a responsibility to make it known, to let the world know that evil will not continue, will not subsist. And at the same time, we can look ahead with hope. Even in the midst of our suffering and our shame and our sin, we look ahead and we say, thanks be to God that Christ is coming back, that one day we will reign and dwell with Him eternally. That hope has a very present and real impact on our lives, especially in times of tragedy and suffering. So what then are we going to make of this? Well, I think the place we need to land this morning is in those middle parables, the one about the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value. Because I guarantee, if you are honest with yourself... Just as I had to be honest with myself this week preparing this sermon, there is something in your life that you're not willing to give up. 
to buy that field. There's something in your life you would actually rather hold on to than own that pearl. There's something. And until we grasp the greatness and the goodness of the kingdom, that something will continue to persist. In fact, it will probably continue to persist until the day we die. The reason, I think, that we don't, that we hold back, that there's things that we hold more closely perhaps than we hold the kingdom, is because we don't actually believe the fullness of those first parables. We're like, yes, yeah, like a mustard seed, I get it. Yes, I understand the leaven. I understand the fullness of the kingdom. But we don't totally believe it because the kingdom is small and it can seem so inconsequential. It's easy to get distracted or to have our hearts turn to the things of this world, the things that make us seem powerful or the things that seem important, whether it's um, wealth or or power, or status, or even making sure we raise our kids the right way. These things can get so distracting. They can seem so much more important than this tiny little kingdom mustard seed that we lose focus. It happens. It happens all the time. But we have to understand the fullness of that little seed. Because the kingdom of heaven was brought to us in the backwaters of the Roman Empire, in a place that nobody wanted any part of, in Palestine, was brought to us when a Jewish rabbi with a few followers was executed like a common criminal. Could there be a more inauspicious beginning to the kingdom of God. But that man, Jesus, three days later, rose from the dead. His followers saw him. Their lives were transformed. And anybody who has met the risen Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit knows the consequences of the kingdom of God. Jesus died, he rose from the dead, and he will never die again. And he is sitting on his throne at the right hand of God, King of kings and Lord of lords, and there is no kingdom on this earth that can stand to that. And when we grasp the fullness of this, that this man Jesus, God himself, died so that we could live, that he gave up everything so we could have the kingdom it melts our hearts. And we come back to Jesus, maybe for the very first time, or maybe time and time again, but when we're walking in the muck and the mire, even though we know Jesus, the only way to get back to Him is to remind ourselves of the kingdom that He brought through His cross and His resurrection. And so we read these parables, and we realize the greatness and the goodness of God and the world He has prepared for us. And we realize that we can let go of things, that we can give things up, that things that are important in this world, we can just let them go. We're willing to do that. And it might seem like weakness or foolishness to this world, but in the way of the kingdom, the self-giving, the self-sacrifices, emptying of ourselves, it is the way of life and light. 
And that's the world we're destined for. That's the kingdom we are called to live out even today. Let us pray.